All right, I guess I am live now. All right, greetings everyone, my English-speaking friends and brethren in Christ. All right, uh, uh, today I want to talk about uh, something relatively hot among some of us, especially the Southern Grace, uh, believers in Southern Grace, the current controversy between some folks well-known uh, you know, in circles of Southern Grace Baptists and uh, Reformed and whatnot. Okay, I want to talk to you about uh, my perspective on a current uh, debate, maybe even Biden and witch hunting that is taking place among some uh, Southern Grace friends here on Facebook. Okay. But I decided I'm not going to be using real names, even though most most of it will be kind of transparent references. But I still, I don't want to use the uh, real names. For some reason, I just want to stick to the doctrine rather than discuss personalities, okay? So it's not about just persons and so forth. I don't want to badmouth anyone. I don't want to malign anyone. That, that it, it, My purpose, you know, forbid from me to hurt somebody needlessly or to, you know, uh, say something bad about somebody's character or, you know, my, my purpose is to discuss the teaching and hopefully uh, that even what I say that it may serve to bring greater unity and maybe to, uh, you know, quench the ongoing uh, fiery, you know, debate among some of us who ought to be closer to each other because we have really so much, and yet, you know, there's this division among us. To me, kind of a needless division. Okay, well, let me state some things. Okay, uh, I'll set the scene for you. Okay, in the right corner of the ring, we have a guy who we would we would name him uh, Sean Pierce. You know, this guy stands very firmly for Calvinistic orthodoxy and uh, that uh, he has a you know, site and, uh, and numerous resources uh, defending the gospel from all attacks from without and within, from outsiders and from those who are within, any deviations of the orthodoxy as regards the gospel that it must be, you know, particular grace alone, predestinarian, limited atonement and so forth. So all the five points emphasized as sharply as can be possibly. Okay, we'll call this guy Sean Pierce. So he represents this attitude of showing zero tolerance to any and all deviations from the right profession of the lips of that gospel. So if you don't profess it right, you're lost. You're not saved. If you tolerate uh, some false statements concerning the gospel from others, you don't understand the gospel itself. You must be lost yourself. So and, and this this guy, we, we call him Sean Pierce for the sake of the, you know, even though most of you will recognize that it's a quite transparent uh, uh, um, disguise. But just for, you know, for the sake of this discussion, I don't want to be throwing real names. So, 
in its one position, you know, I'm more interested in positions, so these are just representatives of uh, uh, respective views, okay? So he places the paramount upon the right verbalization. The profession of the gospel must be very precise. If you don't earn that, if you say something that is not in keeping, then it means, means that you don't understand. If, if you don't understand the gospel, that means that you're not regenerate, you're not saved. And people in this corner, you know, let's call it right corner of the ring, they place the premium upon the right verbalization and profession. It must be very precise. It must be orthodox. You can't say, you know, uh, things that are inconsistent with Calvinistic orthodoxy. I mean, they don't use the term Calvinism as much, but, you know, they kind of prefer doctrines of grace or just the gospel and so forth. Okay. Look at that. The left corner of the ring, we have a person who would name, for the sake of, you know, this presentation, as, say, Bradley Cooper. How about that? Even though there's an actor of that name, but it's not. It's not the Hollywood Bradley Cooper. Okay, Brad Cooper. Okay. Now, this guy is, is also predestined. I mean, we're talking about a, de a debate which is taking place among people who are equally committed to strict predestinarianism, okay, we're talking, we're not talking about a debate uh, between Council and Arminians. No, this is all taking place among and within the camp of strict predestinarians. And superlapsarians, I mean, both of them are committed to superlapsarianism, double predestination, whatnot. I mean, they're pretty Calvinistic. I mean, both sides of this debate. But so this fella on the le in the left corner of the ring, we call him Bradley Cooper, he represents a little different perspective. He believes in the justification of, from all eternity, or eternal justification, okay? And with that, he espouses all the five points, of course. He's also very anti-Armenian, and so on. But there's this disagreement, and the disagreement occurred over someone else's views on how Christ was made sin. And remember, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Him who knew no sin, he made sin to be for us, that we might become righteousness of God in him. So, and... Uh, and there's this, uh, you know, fellow, a minister who uh, recently departed... It wasn't, wasn't himself, in fact, somebody else who was installed by him, ordained by him, probably, ministers who were kind of under his influence, under his umbrella, who said something about to the fact that Christ was made sin, not just by amputation and so forth. I mean, people know what I'm talking about. So, so this brother on the left, he says that, well, it was bad, it was an infelicitous way of saying things that he did muddy the waters and it was wrong of him to say that Christ was made sin in some mysterious fashion that it was more than just imputation. And see, and people on the right side of the debate, they say, look, this is nonsense. I mean, if Christ was made sin by any other in any other way than by imputation if he was made sin by infusion for instance then he became a real sinner 
And then the whole Christianity goes out the window. This is what some folks are saying. Especially, you know, this this guy Sean Pierce is called him, and some, there are some other ministers with real names I don't want to mention right now, but they're saying, look, this is a serious thing. And so there's this debate, you know, among uh, sovereign grace believers, whether or not a person who said on occasions, and it wasn't actually himself, it was somebody else, but he sort of tolerated himself and he and even given the right hand of fellowship and even tried to defend the sentiment that Christ in his um, role of our substitute, that he was made sin in some other fashion than imputation. So he was really made sin, real in some sense. He became really sin. And, and so on. So, there's this, uh, you know, hit a controversy and churches uh, split up and th th that all took place, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It, uh, it's immaterial to the discussion that I'm, uh, to, to my purpose right now, the dates and, and, and the names. Uh, people know what I'm talking about. I'm an outsider, okay? I'm foreign to this debate in a sense, but when I'm watching you know, all this heated exchange. I noticed something that may not be obvious to everybody. And this is something that I want to talk to you guys right now. And bring my perspective, okay? So you have the Sean Pierce on, you know, in the right corner of the ring. And you have Bradley Cooper in the left corner, okay? And they're, they're both predestinarian, super lapsarian, and all of that. But they have somewhat different perspectives on what we call conversion. And this is, and let, let me explain. The guy on the right hand and, and the school that he represents, this is more of a classical, reformed understanding of justification. According to this view, a person is predestinated uh, you know, chosen in Christ from before the foundation and so forth, and redeemed in time by the cross, and so then regenerated by the Holy Ghost, and so forth, when their eyes are open and they believe the gospel, that's according to this position. Justification occurs only when a person believes the gospel, and according to this uh, school, it, it's, you know, belief in the gospel is what? Or belief in Christ is the assent, mental assent, the agreement, and agreement with the propositions presented in the gospel. In the, in the propositions, you can boil them down to the gospel of the particular and efficacious atonement, or the five points of Calvinism. Uh, election, you know, total depravity, all, all those points, okay? So this is... And only at that point in time a person is ever justified. Not a second, not a split second earlier than that. It's when a person believes. It's not based upon their faith. They're careful to say no, it is through faith. It's not their faith itself that is imputed, but, the, but uh, Christ's righteousness. But nevertheless, in this uh, picture of perspective of things, 
you have, you know, a person believing, and there's God at the background sitting in the robe of a judge in a courtroom, and he pronounces a person righteous, he declares them righteous when and only when they believe, i.e., give assent, mental assent to the right set of propositions. And so it's customary for people in this corner to talk about people who are saved. Well, I was saved. I was an unsaved colonist for 20 years. Then I was saved. And this person is unsaved. This person is rejected. That person is... They talk and they like to use the word lost too. Oh, this person is lost. I mean, J.C. Ryle, because he said, well, he must be, he's lost. You know, this person, Martin Luther, he's lost. So they talk a lot about people being lost and some people are saved. But I've said that in another video. According to scriptures, only Christ's sheep are ever lost. So lost is actually a good term. We were lost like lost sheep. And Christ came for the lost sheep of Israel. And Christ, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Okay? So that lostness is a good thing. Goats, I remind you that goats and swine and wolves are never lost in the Bible. Only Christ's sheep are ever lost. So if you're lost, it's actually a good thing that you shall be found. Because the Son of Man, again, came to, say, to seek and to save that which was lost. And, and the only lost things are His sheep for whom He lays down His life. So the lost are also saved. Okay? And here's the thing, okay, so this is, this is the classical reform understanding. In, in point of fact, these people are more classically reformed on this point than I am, even though I'm associated with, with reformed, and so the three forms of unity, and all that stuff. But I'm not that classically reformed on this point of justification. As I've said in, in, in my video on order salutis, or order of salvation, my understanding is that justification is a done deal and it occurs long before you ever come along. And my, you know, my understanding is that again, according to Romans 4.25, it was delivered through offenses or deviations, as the, your translation may say, it was raised through our justification. Christ's justification was a public demonstration, manifestation of the fact that we've been justified, and it's a done deal. Objectively, it occurred. So this is my understanding. Now, the guy on the left corner, Bradley Cooper, we call him for the sake of this presentation, he talks about justification of all eternity. So his position is eternal justification. In the mind of God... It's also like a done deal. He said, well, God never changes. There is not a shadow of turning with him. So what he conceives from all eternity is just as good as already done. Known unto God all of his works from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. In the mind of God, it's all been accomplished. So I understand this perspective. So this, this guy, he likes to talk about 
eternal justification. Now, I personally like to talk about historical justification upon the cross because to me, Scripture stresses that as the you know justification. Okay, but this the classically reformed position. It's justification when you believe through believing. You believing, and God says, all right, you're justified. I declare you righteous through your act of uh, believing. I personally don't believe that God has to wait 2,000 years uh, for to declare somebody who's been already justified in Christ's uh, death, burial, resurrection. Remember? Uh, the book of Hebrews says that uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But the inference is, when there is a shedding of blood, there is remission. Remission necessarily follows the remission. I mean, uh, remission, uh, forgiveness of sin follows the shedding of blood. So, but we know that the shedding of blood did occur. Christ laid on his life. He shed his blood. Therefore, we have remission. So when we hear the gospel, and this, is the, this, this has to do, in fact, with how we view and treat different people. Okay? And our terminology must be precise. Okay? Remember I told you about these guys who talk about this person is saved, this, this person is lost, and so forth. They, they made this slip of the tongue. They said something about universal atonement. Oh, this, this spoke peace to somebody who tolerated universal atonement. So they must be lost. They're not saved, and so forth. Both for Bradley and for myself. We kind of look at it, and we go, this is not exactly what must be happening. Okay, first of all, we don't know till the person, till the day that a person dies that they're among reprobate, that you know, that they're, it was said, well, neither do those, do those guys who say, well, we judge them by the profession of the gospel and they're saved. Well, I say, no, you're not saved, you come to the knowledge of your salvation when you believe. The instrument of faith or your believing is there. God grants you faith whereby you learn of your salvation which has been objectively accomplished 2,000 years ago, long before you came along, long before you were born and ever believed. Okay? My perspective. And then this guy Bradley says, well, it's of all eternity. All of the elect have been viewed as having no blemish, as there's no vice. Uh, he sees no, uh, I forget the, the exact uh, phrasing because, you know, I operate and function in Russian, so I have to translate sometimes thoughts. I, I remember some verses in King James, but not all of them and so forth. Oh, he sees no iniquity. In Israel, one of the favorite, uh, you know, verses of those who represent this eternal justification perspective. Be that as as it may, I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily pushing this eternal. I understand the perspective. I'm on a historical basis, but what we have in common, and we're coming the picture. In this debate, when I see people 
bite, you know, this, this fellow Bradley well, you allow this minister that he was a brother, even though he tolerated and he even covered and defended somebody saying something as dangerously heretical as saying that Christ was made sin in some other way, some other fashion than by imputation. Dangerous heresy. How can that person be saved? He did not abide in the doctrine of Christ. So he had no God, according to Second John, what, verse 10? He who transgresses the doctrine of Christ and does not abide in it has no God. He who continues in the doctrine has both God and both the Son and, and, and God and so forth. So, and if he comes into your house, don't receive him and so forth. It's all in, in Second John. It's one of their favorite places which justifies their very intolerant attitude to those who deviate. Now, I, my, my personal uh, understanding, if Don Fortner and uh, he actually held that Christ was made sin in a sense that he became actual sinner on the cross, not by imputation, but by infusion, then he is a heretic. There's, there's no question about it. And that Christianity does go out of the window. I mean, if Christ was real sinner, then we have no hope. We have no Christianity left. The whole point of Christianity is that the sinless Lamb of God takes upon himself the sin of the world, i.e. The, uh, the punishment, the guilt of our sin, not the sin itself. See, sin is not an entity, okay? It's just the reckoning. God reckons his sin to us and he reckons his righteousness to us. It's because of his jurisdiction, if you, you know, if you will. He uh, views it that way. So he reckons, he accounts our sins to him and our righteousness, in his righteousness, foreign to us. And it's all occurs by imputation. There is no other way that, that it could ever uh, took place, uh, taken place. So, we agree on that. So if that minister tolerated that, of course he's a heretic and so forth. But it's not clear. But in the process, you know, for the on onlooker, somebody who's kind of viewed this kind of... Now, I'm not a Baptist myself, and, uh, and I'm kind of... I'm looking at this uh, happening. It, to me, is a sad thing. I, just, I see people who are divided, who go against each other, People who chase and persecute say, look, remove my name. I don't want to be associated with you because you've tolerated. Now you're even tolerating that a free wheeler and Armenian can be saved and so forth. And they talk a lot about salvation and justification. Because again, for some people, justification occurs in time only when a person believes the gospel and the right propositions of the gospel and not a second earlier. So for them, it, they put the premium on this precise verbalization of the gospel because it is by it that you're either saved or, un, or, or lost. Whereas both Bradley and my, and my own position is, is such that uh, no, those who have been saved have been saved of all. First of all, God, 
looked at them as already righteous and justified, as perfect in Christ, then Christ came and fulfilled and accomplished all there was to be accomplished for their salvation. He secured their salvation. He was raised through their justification. Their sins are covered. And then in time, the Holy Ghost comes, regenerates them, gives them a new heart, gives them eyes to see. They see the kingdom in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel. They believe, and by faith, here's what happens in my perspective. By faith, you're not pronounced justified in the sense that God has to wait 2,000 years to okay, say, all right, oh, believe, all right, now I declare you. Just, no, that's not what's happening. Through the instrumentality of God-given faith, a person learns of their salvation, which has been accomplished, again, objectively. It did occur 2,000 years ago. By faith we learn. By faith we know. Those of old, remember Hebrews 11 talks about faith as a substance of things hoped for and the evidence or assurance, in other translation, of things unseen. And what is this unseen reality? It's our acceptance. It's the fact that our sins have been forgiven. That Christ, having died for our sins according to scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that it accomplished something. He didn't just die on the cross needlessly. That, that by his suffering he shall justify or he, he will see, I mean, through his knowledge, my, uh, my uh, servant, the righteous one, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, Isaiah 53, the end of that chapter. I'm not quoting verbatim, of course, but by faith, you know that, yes, this did take place. That by his stripes or by his wounds, we were healed. And this healing does not occur when you believe in it. You learn about your being healed by his stripes. Okay? So faith, as it were, it does not create a new reality. It's an evidence or assurance of things not seen. You can't see with your eyes. By faith you know, yes, this is what has taken place. You believe in something that has been done. If the gospel isn't, is not an accomplished deal, I mean, we have no gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's all been done. It is finished, as Christ said on the cross. So by faith... You learn of that. And there's a classical, it's interesting that there's a classical verse in, uh, in Luke 1. I want to read it to you. And there's a, a funny story that I'll, I'll, I'll tell uh, later about it. Uh, how uh, uh, I was recognized by some primitive Baptists. But uh, first, I'll, I'll, let me uh, read it to you. Okay, this is the prophet of Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist, of the minister of his son. And he says, Luke uh, 1, 76 and 77, he says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, 
And then verse 77 says, To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. It's to give knowledge of salvation. So through the gospel, when you hear the gospel, you receive the knowledge of your salvation by the remission of your sins. This is what the gospel is for. It gives you the knowledge of your salvation. So it does not create new reality. You've been forgiven. You've been justified and so forth. So, and I remember I was riding the car and uh, that was elsewhere, but uh, there was a bunch of uh, primitive Baptist uh, missionaries. In fact, there are some missionary primitive Baptists. I mean, there are some, some primitives in, in America are anti-missionaries. They say, well, God, you know, doesn't need missions and so forth. But these guys were pretty much bent on missions and so forth. But they were primitive Baptists nonetheless. And they call themselves primitive Baptists. And, and we're discussing this very thing, that justification. I said, look, justification by the blood of Christ. And through faith, knowledge of our salvation. That very same verse in, in Luke 1, uh, 77. To give knowledge of salvation and so forth. And the terrorists, you know, all of them, you know, they said, oh, brother or not, you're not far from the kingdom. I said, well, that's gratifying to hear, though. I'm, I'm, I'm so, I mean, I know they're ecclesiology. By the way, I'm not a primitive Baptist. I'm not a Baptist at all. I, I may be primitive enough in another sense, but, and we have sharp differences with primitive Baptists, me and, and, and them, concerning ecclesiology and Baptists, especially their their fanatic insistence that it's got to be immersion. It's got to be by us. Otherwise, there ain't no baptism and so forth. We have sharp disagreements with him. But, come on. The, the instrumentality of faith is not being declared by for the first time. No, you get to know of what's been done through the gift of faith. Of salvation and so forth. Now, why am I talking about this justification of so forth? I think it has bearings, uh, bearing upon this current uh, conundrum, whether this person can be saved or they're lost and so forth. This terminology and, and, and tensions. If you put premium upon verbal profession and, and you view a person being either saved or not saved or lost as they say, only if they're able to verbalize the gospel very precisely, polemically honed, you know, sharpened. It's got to be, you know, this and this and this. And I also reject and anathematize, you know, all, you know, universal uh, conditional redemption and so forth. So it has to be very precise according to you know, some folks, they'll say, oh, now he's saved. You know, he was lost. Now he's saved and so forth. You know, to me and to, to this other fellow, you know, the, it, it must have been saved all along. It's just conversion. We're talking about conversion. But conversion, when a person hears the gospel, they are turned. But this turning, ladies and gentlemen, it may take a while. In point of fact, I mean, if we look at conversion, and it's good to use this term, not saving, 
You can't save yourself. You don't save yourself. Your faith does not save you in any sense of the word. It is Christ that saves. We were crystal clear. This would be conditionalism. And by the way, this justification in time smacks of conditionalism. And I'll mention that in a minute. But if we talk about conversion, that it's life that is brought to light by the gospel, that it can be a thing. Let me make, let me uh, make some uh, references to my own past. Even though I, I understand we can't be allowed theology upon our experience, our experience must be judged by Scripture. Yes, and Amen. And I'll give you some scriptural exam, uh, instances too. But l let me tell you this: It was back in the mid '90s. I wasn't seeking after God. I wasn't on the holy trip. I wasn't being concerned about my salvation in any sense of the word. I mean, I was just a, you know, guy who was English. You know, preoccupation with English. And my initial, by the way, my initial motivation was, I, I want to study English. Why? Well, because I love the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the British uh, hard rock bands of the time. So I can understand what they're saying when they're saying, okay, number one. Number two, I might actually... You know, immigrate, you know, go to either England or, or United States of America. I'm not sure, but I want to live right. You know, this Soviet Union business, you know, got tired of it. And so forth. That, that was my initial motivation. Now, in the process, I'm studying English and so forth. And lo and behold, by God's providence, I get a whole of set of audio tapes. And I mean, anybody who... Studies uh, uh, foreign language, be it English or any any other language. I mean, you know, you gotta improve your listening comprehension skills. So you've got to listen to some native speakers talking, and that way you learn uh, their their language. So I borrowed this set of tapes from a friend of mine, who was a Baptist, but he was scared of me. He wouldn't tell me that he was a you know that he was that he was a Baptist anyway. So I'm just listening to this odd narration. Of the New Testament, okay, just be because I want it. Well, okay, this is English. I mean, I don't care about religion, but just for my listening comprehension skills, I'll I'll listen to this stuff. Yeah, really, just propaganda, uh, probably, but kind of interesting. And then it was more interesting. You know, then I couldn't not listen to every. It was my favorite time. Put on the tape. Listen, especially the book of Acts, just fascinated me. Some apostles, some Jesus of whom the world testified and so forth. Was I was just being, boy, I was being fascinated by the story. So, and one night, I remember that. And that was actually preaching on the dead Almost like the light shone right above me. You know, I, just, I realized that all of a sudden, just a light came on. I knew, I knew it was all real, this Jesus of Nazareth, all the things that he did and said, it was just as true as anything that can be called true. And he was killed and he rose again. And through him is preached the forgiveness of sins to you. So it's just, I was changed from that point on.
Now, I didn't know it. I mean, it, it was not a religious tract. It wasn't preaching. Nobody ever explained it to me. So, I mean, I still had funny views. I didn't even know the Old Testament at that point. It was just the New Testament. And part of him, actually, the guy kept the gospel. So, without hearing the, the, the four gospels, he gave me just the book of Acts and then Romans and, and the rest of them. So, the, the epistles. I mean, that, that's the old information that I had but I got enough apparently to be converted or to begin the process of conversion then I went on to you know to uh, nearest uh, Union Baptist uh, Church it was as Armenian as they get and uh, I didn't like it a whole lot but I, there was nothing better than I moved to another town and I was introduced to some other church which was happy and clappy and welcoming but it was just as Armenian inside as the first little one back in my hometown and, and so began my experience now fast forward I, during all this time I mean I I'd gone through beliefs and practices I was an evangelical, then I got tired of evangelicalism because it was just so plain, stupid, and shallow. I mean, it, all of you who've been in evangelical churches and happy, clappy, you know, Jesus loves me and I love him and so forth. Everybody's happy, and then you get, you know, it gets old after a while. So is this all there is to it? The Christian? So then, and then, well, maybe, and somebody said, well, maybe you ought to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Second baptism. With the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues and so forth. So I tried to be Pentecostal for a while and it didn't work. And I realized it was all just big pretense. All of this to it. All of this. You know. Then the real thing, then uh, well, maybe the Church of Rome being the oldest one, the true apostolic church, maybe they have the answer. So I tried to be Roman Catholic for a while, and I didn't work, even though it took longer. My romance with Rome took longer than, uh, than, than the Pentecostal revivalism uh, fad of mine. So I took basically, I tried all the ways, probably, by the time when the God visited me again. And remember, and again, that, that, that was the R.C. Sproul. I was listening to him one of his tapes on predestination, and I remember that sipping coffee and then listening to his, you know, to his talking, and uh, and I remember him saying that election based on foreseen faith is election based upon the foreseen works, the works of faith, because you know faith has you know you have to believe in by faith. It's something that you do, and if it's Based on that, it's a denial of election. Either election is election of grace or there's no election. And I remember when th that phrase of sprawl just really hit me. And then I remembered, yes, this is so scriptural. And so this Calvinism began to just flood in. And lo and behold, I'm all completely, you know, sold out the reformed faith and from that day I mean that that was quite a while ago but the point is this now what I'm saying is that I began to be converted if you put it that way uh, that way way back okay 
when I was hearing on tapes the book of Acts and the epistles and so forth. That was the point when God, the God of glory, appeared to me of old in that desert. And I was a changed person from that point. Even though I still, I, still, I was to tread many false paths and so forth, try revivalism, Pentecostalism, and Romanism. I had to, in God's providence, to find out that they were really false. I had to try those paths. And then now, I think I'm in the right place in the sense that I don't want to call it, I don't quite fit in any of the ready-made molds. If you, you know, so that I don't, I have a hard time fitting. The Reformed people say, well, you, you, you're a hyper-Calvinist. And I am on some points. I am a hyper-Calvinist. You know, the Baptists are not happy with me because I, you know, I tolerate not immersive. In point of fact, I strongly argue for sprinkling as a problem. And I can give you another lecture on sprinkling as the proper one. I do believe it. So I'm not an immersionist and so on. But so, so I have, my point is this, that I was converted back in the hot summer of 1995. Okay, even though this conversion, when the art converted, was said to Peter, it's still a process. When you view things that way, you can show probably more greater level of grace and acceptance. A sister asked me, and she's Russian by it. She said, look, what is all this thing? And she's kind of observing it. You have this person, you, you guys are all callous and you devour each other. What's happening? I said, look, it's hard to explain to you, especially in this context, because we don't have that same thing in our Russian context at this point. We don't have gospel precisionists. We don't have eternal salvation guys and so forth. Uh, guys like, my, like myself caught in between. But this is what is important. Justification by faith. The classical Protestant doctrine. And this, this fella, Sean Pierce as I call him in this presentation. He's more classically reformed because he believes in justification by belief. I believe justification by the blood of Christ. And the faith is only an instrument of your conscience. Learning of your... Uh, you know, salvation, which has been accomplished, okay? So that through the gospel, through the hearing of the gospel, a person is converted, not saved. You can't be saved by verbalizing stuff. You can't be saved by your mental activity. By, by the way, this really comes down when you think about it. This whole thing of salvation by verbal precisionism, by, by very pre uh, precise uh, verbalization of the gospel, smacks of conditionalism in this, in this fashion. The picture is this, that the covenant of grace is pictured as something that has an objective reality. But you are, or somebody else, who's sort of outside of the covenant, and that you enter 
Note carefully, you enter in that covenant by the means of faith. The emphasis, yes, faith itself is a gift. It must be given from above and so forth. That's not work of yours. It's a Nevertheless, by faith or through faith, you get into that covenant. But it's not part of the covenant itself. It's sort of a, really, in a sense, it's a condition that one must fulfill in order to get into that covenant. Okay? And this is conditional. Even though you say, well, God fulfills that condition. He gives you faith. Nevertheless, it's something that a person must do to enter in. Whereas in my perspective, the perspective of this other gentleman, boy, it's... It's been accomplished. It's been done all of all eternity. Yes, and then you hear and you get converted. We talk about conversion. Let me say this. Of course, if a person spouts brazen Arminianism or says some other damnable heresy, saying that, oh, I believe that God loves everybody, absolutely, that Christ died for everybody, to give everybody a chance, that the Holy Ghost is helping everybody, but the, at the end of the day, it depends on your willing and running. If a person says that, they're not converted. Okay? And we ought to be clear on that. And I believe that all of you uh, watching me would nod your heads and say, yes, amen, yes. That, you know, that person cannot be converted. Now, whether or not they're saved or not, we don't know. There might be among the elect. We don't know. Yes, at this point, and as long as they say this, that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everybody, and it depends on your will and, and running. Of course they're not converted. But there might be among the elect. We don't to people like that, and we shouldn't. And I don't think that the, the fellow that I'm trying to defend, uh, I call him Bradley Cooper in this presentation, He's not saying that free willers are saved. He's saying that people can be saved in weird, strange places. And they may not know all the right terminology, say it right, but they kind of believe in salvation by grace alone. And then the only thing that they cling to is the hem of Christ's garment. If thy wilt, thou canst make me clean. And God be merciful to me, sin and so forth. And you have people like that in strange places. And they will come out, of course. And we would talk about their salvation. Well, because it's been accomplished. It's not because they're in their Armenian churches. I believe there are some converted or on the way of conversion uh, persons in the free will of Armenian churches. There's no doubt about it. In some, in some other strange places as well. Of course, as they see more light, yes, they ought to come out and say, look, and, and speak against the, the wolves in sheep's clothing who uh, spout nonsense from their pulpits, uh, proclaiming free will, saying, well, yeah, God is, God is sovereign, but he limits his sovereignty. So all that nonsense that you hear from the Armenian preachers. But can a person be saved in that, in that environment of an Armenian church? If they've been saved by Christ, if they've been elect, 
sometimes a simple verse from the Bible, scripture, just, just scripture. You read scripture and you are converted. Yes, you need to grow. Yes, you need to shake off all those human traditions. So forth. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle, boy. It's an uphill battle for all of us. So again, back to the initial scene. So the difference, you know, when this lady says, what is this deal? I mean, you have, I mean, I'll look at you, both Calvinists, here you have Cal, and just fighting each other. So what's going on here? I say, well, look, it's hard to explain, I'll try to explain, it's just different perspectives. And some, some of the differences are pretty significant. I do believe that this conviction that a person is justified, declared righteous by God, through their assent to the right propositions of the gospel, and not a second earlier, these people are more likely to be more judgmental and say, well, this person is not saved, this, this guy is saved, this is unsaved, this is lost, and so forth. And it's kind of, it's from then that you hear stuff like that about, uh, about people, uh, you know, been unsaved, now I'm saved, and so forth. What affected your salvation? How did it come about? Because you realize that Calvinism is truth? Yeah, Calvinism is truth. But it's not when you're... When was a sneaky conditionalism. Your salvation then is conditioned upon your ability to say things right. So everybody's satisfied. Okay, okay, we believe their profession and so on. The profession must be there, right? and I think that we we, we got to be careful. I want to be as anti-Armenian as I can be, and I just gave the. Same talk in Russian. I was even stronger in my some of my expressions against Armenian heresy, which I do believe is a serious heresy. And we're we're not to speak peace to those who, you know, espouse and openly propagate Armenianism. What I am saying, though, that there might be persons who are genuinely saved by the blood of Christ, believe or tormented in their souls, like Lot was living in. Sodom and Gomorrah. So there are people in strange places that can be converted. Okay, and the conversion is a process. Whereas the salvation on the cross was kind of an accomplished deal. Like your conversion, my conversion, it's still a thing. As I said back in the night, is when I heard uh, the preaching of Peter on on the day of Pentecost. Did I believe? Yes, I did. Let me tell you something. I was given, since I was listening to an even limited uh, amount of uh, uh, tapes, and so the information was really limited. It's just basically the book of Acts, and then Pauline, uh, Pauline epistles, and then uh, general epistles, and then the, the book of 1 Corinthians. I remember listening to uh, uh, Paul's se severe warnings about uh, not discerning the Lord's body in the suffering. <laughs> I had this strange notion. Since there was nobody else to explain it to me, you know, I thought that we ought to be careful that each meal, just a plain meal, you know, when, we, when you eat every, every once, every time that you have a bite, I thought 
that boy, I gotta approach it rightly. If I don't discern the Lord's body, which was broken for me, I'll be eating of that bread unworthily. So, even though, you know, this is funny, but for, for a short period of time, I did entertain so that I'd pray and try to get myself in it. Boy, you know, this represents the body of Christ. Even a simple meal. Now the Lord's Supper. So, entertain strange ideas. But the point is that when the Lord appears to you, He will lead you. He will grow you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And a conversion can be a process. And we ought to show for some bearing and forbearing and patience. A lot of patience. A, person's, a person may not know everything there is to be known. We don't know everything there is to be known. They may not be as educated as we are. They may not have all the language, the terminology. But with patience and grace, we approach. We're not to extend the right hand of fellowship to those who, who teach another gospel. Yes, of course not. We don't do that. At the same time, must be uh, willing to uh, at least give the benefit of the doubt to people who uh, have not had a lot of opportunity to, to hear good uh, preaching, good teaching, okay? Especially nowadays uh, when uh, most churches just preach nonsense. So let us show more grace. We shouldn't be quick to judge and to condemn and to judge somebody who is not saved. Okay, it's not your prerogative. Okay. Yes, we judge by the profession of the gospel. But by the profession of the gospel, we can say, well, this person may not be converted. Or oh, oh, they're not converted at this point. But you don't talk about, well, this person is lost, that person is lost. You, oh, if they're lost, they'll be found for sure. Christ shall seek them and find them. The old Lord belongs to him. He is the Savior, not us. In our verbal profession of the gospel. Okay, that's the point that I wanted to make, and hopefully these two cents will help. And 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 there's another discussion. So when I look at them, uh, you know, my my understanding is that we need to talk about right perspective. You know, so it's not the justification per se, justification is upon the cross. It's whether a person is converted. Or not converted. And I think that does make a difference when you look at the debates like that. Alright, may God bless you all. Have a good day. Alright, hopefully this uh, will be helpful to at least some of you. May God bless you all.